You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. Before we begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands in which we meet and to pay our respects to the spirits and ancestors both past and present. My name's Margaret Nicholson and I'm the Program Support Librarian from the Customer Service team. Today I have the pleasure of introducing Clive Hamilton, who is here to talk about his unique memoir, Provocateur. Clive is an Australian author and academic. His influential books include Silent Invasion, Growth Fetish, Requiem for a Species, Why We Resist the Truth About Climate Change and Defiant Earth, The Fate of Humans in the Anthropocene. Thank you. For 14 years, he was the Executive Director of the Australia Institute, a think tank which he founded. Um, As a professor at the Charles Sturt University in Canberra, he has held visiting academic positions at Oxford University, the University of Oxford, Yale University and Sciences Po, which I didn't know what that was. I googled it, but... um, his articles have also appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Guardian, The New York Times, Times Higher Education, Supplement, Nature and Scientific American. Please give a warm welcome to Clive Hamilton. Lovely. Thank you for that uh, intro. And thanks to uh, Constant Reader and the Stanton Library for hosting this event and for all of you for coming along. Um, it's kind of weird to write a memoir. Um, I'd finished the second China book I wrote, Hidden Hand, with Marika Olberg, my co-author, and didn't have another book in mind, and I was in a kind of limbo. I certainly wasn't going to write another book on China. Um, That would have been a bit too much. But coming out of the tumult and drama of uh, my engagement with the China issue, um, it seemed to me to be kind of the right time. Um, There was a lot that happened behind the scenes, There's a lot that I've been engaged in right through my career um, as public engagement since I set up the Australia Institute in 1993 that I've learned about how the world of ideas works. You know, why? how do ideas change politics, change the world? And it's it's a lot murkier um, than you might think. And and so I thought I'll, I'll write about what I've learned and I also found when I was at the Australia Institute, people often asked me, you know, they were kind of intrigued about what, what, what is a think tank actually and how does it work? And so I thought it would be a good time to explain at least how I uh, saw a think tank and ran a think tank, or even though it was a bit unusual. And uh, so the first thing I did <clears throat> when I decided to write a memoir is to find some books and articles on how to write a memoir... Uh, because it's quite a different uh, literary genre. You know, all my books have been, you know, non-fiction books such as the ones that were, uh, were mentioned. And writing a memoir is really quite a different kind of writing. And there are things you do and things you avoid. Um, and, uh, and so I had actually been uh, working on my fiction writing for quite some time. So I'd like to, like many people, write a novel. Um, and I'd learned a lot about fiction writing that actually... Uh, uh, there's a trap here. I'm, where am I going with this? Um, 
techniques, writing techniques you learn that, uh, that fiction writers, novelists use that are extremely uh, useful for writing an engaging memoir. Um, I know that certain politicians have written memoirs and their publishers have prevailed on them. Perhaps you could just cut out this bit or reduce that uh, from three chapters to one and usually, or some of them just don't and therefore they write fairly dull memoirs. So um, the book, the, uh, the memoir is um, really the, the central, you know, a, a memoir and autobiography, as you probably know, aren't the same thing. Uh, an autobiography is the story of a life and a memoir is about a theme in my case, my role as a public intellectual. Um, and so really the, uh, the, uh, the, the principal kind of themes or threads that run through it, um, well, perhaps the first is how ideas can change the world um, and what I've learnt uh, about uh, ideas that work and ideas that don't and, and why. Uh, and so it's also about how the world really works. It's kind of what I've learnt over 30 or plus years of public engagement about how politics works, the intersection with ideas uh, and politics uh, and the relationship with the media, which is vital, uh, how to engage with public opinion, how to lead it, not get too far out front, how to pick the, uh, the zeitgeist, as I say in the book, how to be kind of a year or two in front of the emergence of a public debate, write the book that therefore becomes um, the constant around which the, the debate is uh, held. Um, that's you know, a skill I learnt running the Australia Institute. And it's also about the personal impacts, in fact it's quite a lot about the personal impacts of participating in the public debate in various ways. You know, I put my hand up and say I'm, I, I participate in pretty robust ways so I'm not going to complain about the kind of blowback uh, that I that I uh, that I get, but nevertheless it can exact uh, quite a personal toll. So um, one of the things I love most about writing a memoir—it's the first book I've ever written where I didn't have to include footnotes, <laughs> which you know drive you nuts and drive editors nuts. You know, in Silent Invasion, for example, there were two thousand footnotes, and you've no idea what it takes to copy edit. 2,000 footnotes, you know? Does the comma go before the quotation mark uh, or after? Uh, you know, and where, where do um, full stops go and you know, should that be italicised? I mean, it, it takes forever, even no matter how exacting you are in the first draft. So that was a, that was a real uh, relief. The other thing, of course, that when you read uh, uh, books about how to, write, how to write memoirs is that they stress quite rightly that you have to be as truthful as you can because your readers will, you know, pick it up reasonably quickly if you start, you know, uh, uh, varnishing the truth too much. Um, but it's not as easy as that as I found when I started uh, researching and thinking about and uh, dredging through my memory because memory is a very, very unreliable thing. We kind of know this, you know, you know, you know those crime scene things and the police say, well, witness A, Your Honour, said that the man was wearing a purple scarf. Uh, witness B insisted it was green. But the CCTV shows, in fact, it was black. And uh, people see things differently when they're involved in the events. And it turns out that uh, 
you know, when you're writing a memoir, you're prone to that as well because I was, there was uh, one of the things I did, apart from consult you know, documents uh, wherever I could, which is only a part of it, and I, I, I'm not a diary keeper except for certain crucial points. For example, when the whole Alan and Unwin thing blew up and they refused to publish Silent Invasion, I thought, this is big, I'm going to keep a diary, which I did for a few months. And when I was the Greens candidate in Higgins, in 2009, I kept a daily diary because I thought this would be interesting. Um, but other than that, I had to rely mainly on my memory and talking to others who were there, and it was remarkable. You know, I met with mm, 12 or 15 people who were involved in various parts of stuff I did, and uh, I said, oh, you remember when this happened? They said, no. <laughs> uh, and then they'll say, oh, yeah, but you did so-and-so. I said, did I? Um, so it's, it's like some things stick out in your memory and other things just disappear. And yet sometimes the things that disappear are really the most interesting things. Someone would say, you, we did that, remember? I said, no, I've forgotten that, but that's a great story to tell. So it's one thing to say you must tell the truth in a memoir. It's another to know what the truth is. Uh, but of course, you, know, you do have to try to be as honest as you can. Um, um, and you know, I've been pretty honest in this. And, uh, uh, although I have to say that when I, the, f the manuscript being read by the editors at Hardy Grant, a couple of times they said, um, Clive, do you really want to say that? I said, well, you know, <laughs> that's what happened. Yes, but do you really want to say that? <laughs> well, that's who I am. Well, it's up to you. you know? <laughs> so uh, it's interesting that there are people who have your interests at heart that want you to kind of modify something a bit because you don't look quite so whatever. So that was an interesting thing as well. So um, I mentioned um, fiction. Let me just mention a couple of the techniques that I've been kind of practising over the uh, last few, ye few years. Not that I've published any fiction, but uh, maybe I will one day. But one of the things that fiction novelists do is they, they, they write in a distinct voice. A voice is very, very important in, in novels. And it's the same in writing a memoir. It has to be your voice. I mean, it'd be interesting for you, those of you who buy the book and read it, whether the voice that you are hearing now um, is the same voice that comes through off the page uh, when you read it. Um, and uh, people who write books about memoir writing say, if it's not the same, if it's not the same person speaking, then readers uh, won't, uh, won't believe it, basically. So that was uh, something interesting to, to kind of think about as I wrote. Another thing was to keep up the pace. I mean, you don't want to read about the boring bits. You want to read about the exciting or interesting bits. And so, of course, uh, some events and uh, segments of, of a life get quite a lot of attention and the kind of the boring year in 2014 or whatever doesn't get any attention uh, at all. And you need to take... Uh, and I have to say... I've, gratified that a couple of very early readers have been very few so far um, you need to take the readers on a journey and some of them felt that they were being taken on a journey through my own evolution that kind of the wins and the travails and the, and the losses and the humiliations and so on so um, yeah it was a it was a terrific uh, thing to do uh, in the sense of uh, as, a, as a writing practice and also you know, reflecting on, on myself and, you know, uh, certain aspects of what I've done and who I am, you know, ca came into sharper view as a result of uh, writing the memoir. I'll leave that.
to you to, to uh, try and find what uh, that might be. So what I uh, thought I'd do just for 10 or 15 minutes is give you a kind of <clears throat> flavour of, of the book by reading a few extracts um, and um, see, um, see, see what you think. So <clears throat> let me see. So, uh, uh, okay. So let me um, talk about the launch event that we staged in early 2000, uh, sorry, early 1994, 4th of May, um, for the Australia Institute, which had, I'd spent a few months just preparing and getting ready to launch. The public launch of the Australia Institute was held on 4 May 1994 at Brassy House, a heritage building in Canberra, opened in 1927 as a hostel for public servants. It brings back sepia-toned memories for me because, as a boy... I had sold newspapers from the steps on freezing Canberra mornings. The kitchen ladies would take pity on me and call me in to eat a hot breakfast. Michael Kirby, then President of the New South Wales Court of Appeal, agreed to be the main speaker. Kerry O'Brien, fronting late line at the time, was the MC. We were strapped for cash, but I wanted the event to be lively, so I hired a quirky barbershop quartet to serenade the tables. We had a full house and I couldn't have been happier with the mix of people. The idea of a new progressive think tank had caught on. Kerry was smooth, witty and professional. I spoke about the genesis and purpose of the Institute and Max Neutzer, uh, who was the chair, first chair of the Institute, um, sadly died, spoke on what would be an early theme of our work, a return of ethics in the age of economics. In a superb speech, Michael Kirby talked of the ne neglect and marginalisation of the unemployed and Indigenous people, but also of, quote, druggies, sex workers, lesbians, poofs and other trash. He set the Institute a goal. He said, may it never forget the neglected, the despised, the underprivileged, the disadvantaged. Let it speak up for the trash. We were all moved and inspired by Michael Kirby's words. With speeches over... And the well-juiced crowd in a lively mood was time for the entertainment, a little-known comedian by the name of Judith Lucy. But where was she? I found Judith out the back, her face pale, her voice shaky. She was immobilised by stage fright. I can't do it, she told me. She looked like she was going to be sick. I encouraged and coaxed her and soon led her into the room and sat down at the head table. In her trademark drawl, Judith began by commenting on how intimidating it was to be in front of such an intellectual audience. She said, it's great to be at an event where no one calls out, show us your tits. <laughs> of course, someone called out, show us your tits. <laughs> and without missing a beat, Judith looked over to me and said, was that you, Clive? <laughs> My God, I shrank at the thought that anyone might believe I could say such, such a thing. Having regained her balance, Judith was soon flying. She was out there, the proto-feminist comedian, with her bright, lips, bright red lipstick, hairy armpits and savage wit. Her spear was excruciating but hilarious with several edgy jokes about menstruation that made some of the older men blanch. I loved it. Her sharp commentary presaged my intention that the Institute should challenge sensibilities. It reflected 
the early influence on me of the counterculture. Uh, let's try uh, a couple more. Uh, let me see. Here's an interesting one that might surprise a little bit. Around the, so we set up the institute three years later. Um, I'd had offices at, uh, uh, at with a uh, loaned to us by Hugh Sadler, who was a person I knew uh, well in Canberra. He was on the board. Around the middle of 1997, Hugh Sadler's business was expanding and we needed to find new accommodation. We rented a small office in a cheap building at Lynham Shops in North Canberra, enough for three people plus a volunteer or two. Soon after moving, I noticed an uneasy feeling about the place, a bad vibe. It fe I felt it each morning as I arrived, as if someone had been murdered there, or the previous tenants had a toxic workplace that had seeped into the walls. After a time, I mentioned it to Elizabeth, who was our part-time office manager. She'd been feeling it too. I thought it would pass, but it didn't seem to fade. We talked it over, and I suggested that I ask an Anglican bishop I knew, an institute supporter named Richard Randerson, to carry out some kind of cleansing ritual. Neither of us were at all religious, but it was that or break the lease and move out. Richard arrived a day or two later. He walked around the room, softly saying a prayer and waving something. Elizabeth and I quietly followed him. It was all very low-key. Whatever he did, it worked. Arriving the next morning, it was immediately apparent that the unpleasant feeling was gone. Many will scoff, as I once would have. Since my teens, I've been a hard-nosed rationalist. But from my late 30s, I began to appreciate that there's more to the world than the eye can see. Um, what's next? Uh, how about... Uh, here's a good one. In early December 2005, while sitting in my ANU office, because I was teaching there part-time because the institute didn't have any money, a call came through from Janine Cohen, an investigative journalist from Four Corners. She was just phoning to see whether I had any story ideas for 2006. It was almost as if I'd been waiting for such a call because in my back pocket I'd been carrying around a stick of dynamite. About five years earlier, the head of the ANU's graduate program in public policy, Glenn Withers, had asked if I'd serve as a co-supervisor for one of his PhD students. The research topic was industry engagement in greenhouse policy. It was right up my alley, but the candidate was a Liberal Party staffer, which made me a bit suspicious. How could someone who worked inside the coalition government analyse, because it was Howard and full of deniers and so on, um, analyse the issues objectively? It turned out that Guy Pearce, who wrote speeches for Robert Hill and shared a house in Canberra with George Brandis, was a young man of independent mind who understood the seriousness of climate change. He had a unique insight into the workings of the Liberal Party and corporate lobbying, and perhaps above all, his conservative credentials meant he was trusted by the power players, the ones telling the lies to the public and playing the dirty tricks. So I was keen to see where his research would lead. 
After a time, Guy submitted the thesis and a few months after that, uh, it was passed by the examiners. In its pages were quotes from the self-styled greenhouse mafia, the fossil fuel lobbyists, boasting about how they drafted and vetted confidential cabinet submissions about their mateship with the public servants formulating policy and about their direct line to Howard and his chief of staff, Arthur Sinodinus. Drawn largely from senior levels of the bureaucracy, the greenhouse mafiosi claimed they knew, quote, more about energy policy than the government does. One said that the reason he gets out of bed each morning was to defeat the environmentalists. The thesis exposed corruption of democratic governance at the highest level, all done in collaboration with senior ministers from Howard Down. The final thesis was lodged in the Menzies Library at the ANU with restricted access. There it was, sitting there, a bomb that only needed detonation. So in December 2005, I mentioned it to Janine Cohen, outlining its contents and its provenance, a Liberal Party insider. She saw it straight away. It had scoop written all over it. I said I couldn't promise anything. It would be up to Guy. I phoned Guy, told him why I thought it important for his thesis to see the light of day and described what he could expect to happen if he appeared on Four Corners. I then left it to him to contact Janine. On Monday, 13th February 2006, the first Four Corners program of the year went to air, titled the Greenhouse Mafia, it was a blockbuster. I'm sure some of you remember that. It opened with, quote, a whistleblower steps forward with claims that industry representatives has burrowed deep inside the federal bureaucracy in a successful bid to hijack greenhouse policy. Guy was at the centre of the program, revealing what the fossil fuel lobbyists had told him. To say it created a sensation would be an understatement. Uh, perhaps one more. Uh, yeah, OK. 2.12. In the winter of 2016, I was despondent about the future unfolding in a warming world. I was finishing the draft of Defined Earth, the third in a trilogy on climate change after Requiem for a Species and Earth Masters on geoengineering. Over two decades, I've written several books on climate change, penned hundreds of opinion articles, given two or three hundred public talks, and issued warnings through the media uncountable times. I had run for parliament, co-convened a high-level international task force, and fought for stronger recommendations out of the Climate Change Authority. None of it had made any difference. The faint hope conjured by the arrival of Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister had been snuffed out by deniers on his back bench. The world was careening towards disaster with Australia leading the pack of carbon polluters. I had done all I could. I had recited every argument. I had nothing more to say. So now what was I going to do? In August 2016, Newspapers began reporting on large donations being made to the main political parties by wealthy Chinese or Chinese-Australian business people. The gifts were generous, to say the least. Why are they doing that, I wondered. What do they want? It soon emerged that New South Wales Labor Party power broker, Senator Sam Dastiari, was at the centre of the donations. 
He took the money, then fronted a media conference for Chinese language journalists, standing next to the most generous donor, Sydney property developer Huang Jiangmo. He contradicted his party's stance on the South China Sea and mouthed Chinese Communist Party talking points. Along with revelations that a mysterious Chinese-Australian businessman had paid off his personal debts, it was obvious to me that something very big and very dirty had wormed its way into, the, into Australia's political system, the more so when journalists began reporting the links of some of these wealthy donors to the CCP. The implications of this are huge, I thought to myself. It's one thing for homegrown corporates and lobbyists to be corrupting our political system. It's quite another for an authoritarian foreign power to be doing it. It offended me. I decided that that would be my next book. And the rest is history. Um, perhaps one last one. One last one. Um, I've got the thumbs up from the back. 284. In mid-July 2018, a um, silent invasion came out in February 2018. In mid-July 2018, I departed for Heidelberg via Tokyo and Frankfurt. I'd left the arrangements too late and could find no accommodation. Through Airbnb, I came upon a quaint old house in an ancient walled village called Dealsburg, built atop a ruined fortress on a steep hill. It was hard to get to. Once I'd worked it out, from my office in Heidelberg to the house took 40 minutes by foot, train and bus. I filled in the days in my creaky third floor office in an old building, uh, it was at the University of Heidelberg, in the theology faculty, oddly enough. Um, I filled in the days in my creaky third floor office in an old building in Hauptstrasse, alone and ignored, which suited me, I looked across the ancient city and the Neckar River to the forested hillside and the famous Philosopher's Walk, um, or Philosopher's Way, along which the Romantic-era poet Friedrich Hölderlin ambled. But what was I going to do here? My idea of looking further into the meaning of the Anthropocene now seemed like a dead end. Bruno Latour had sent me a couple of his latest papers, but they no longer did anything for me. China experience had changed me. Although the last months had been energising and exciting, it was disturbing to live and breathe the CCP's malevolence every day. So I sat in my office with no enthusiasm for anything. Perhaps I just had to give myself time. My host at the University of Heidelberg, Professor Michael Velker, had invited me and a dozen others to dinner at his very nice house in the village outside the city. There were half a dozen theologians and their wives. The theologians were brilliant and deep, but their wives were much more interesting. They took a kind of anthropological view of their husbands. Chatting to one in the early evening, I explained I'd just arrived from Australia. Pointing out some of the men, she said, he is Old Testament, he is New Testament, and he's systematics. What are you? <laughs> I often ask myself the same question, I thought, <laughs> before mumbling something about not being a theologian. I'll stop there. Happy for some questions. Hi. We are recording this for the podcast, so I'll get you to speak into the microphone so we can record the questions for Clive. Uh, does anyone have one? 
Thanks, Clive. Here. Uh, we are reminded um, with the action that Lachlan Murdoch is taking against Crikey um, that journalists take risks. And Adele Ferguson has said that you know, she's received death threats and we know the federal police um, have raided journalist offices. So I'm wondering in your own writing, um, to what extent have you felt the need to withhold at a certain point, fearing there may be some litigation on your way? Mm. Yeah, very good question. Um, I'm, I'm quite careful. Um, you know, I say in the context of the David Jones dispute, which I detail uh, in the book, when David Jones come out, came after the Institute, um, and myself personally, using the ferocious defamation lawyer Mark O'Brien, um, and the first thing I did when I got this legal threat was to go to our insurance policy. And I'd had the foresight when I first set up the Institute to take out professional indemnity insurance, including insurance against defamation actions. Um, so I'm not sure I could, you know, not me in particular, think tanks that are out there could get that insurance anymore. And so what one does to protect oneself is to basically get others to take the risk, and that is publishers, whether they're newspapers um, or Hardy Grant, um, and they have their defamation lawyers. And so everything I've written in books, if it's at all controversial, is vetted by uh, the defamation lawyers employed by uh, the, new, the, the publishers, and in some cases newspapers. And there's certainly been instances where important things that the public should know um, which I know to be true, the, the newspapers haven't published for that reason because they are awful defamation laws. So I'm just, this is just m my experience that uh, journalists uh, like Adele Ferguson, Nick McKenzie, um, have in trying to get the truth out there. So it's, it's being sued by someone with a lot of power and money is, is a very scary thing, you know, you, you, because, partly because... You know, well, you can lose a huge amount of money, and you know you have you know, you know your partner, for example, you know you your house, your asset is typically jointly owned, so you have these kind of moral obligations to other people that you have to consider as well. So yeah, I'll just say it again, as so many say it, you know, our defamation laws, and of course, New South Wales is the worst in Australia. Australia is the worst in the kind of Western world. They really do need further reform. You know, they keep fiddling at the edges. And yet, important news stories um, are still not getting out there because they're, you know, they're true and there's sound reasons for believing they're true, but uh, newspapers are scared, scared to publish. And the crikey thing, I mean, it's just scandalous. I mean, it's just what, he, what Bernard Keynes said. It was just a normal part of political yagi-bagi. You know, he said the Murdoch um, media through Fox News... You know, is, 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 has responsibility for what happened on January 6th. Well, they did. I mean, there's no doubting that. Anyone with half a brain can see that. But Lachlan Murdoch has taken it upon himself to use the vast resources of News Limited, not to counter it through their news outlets, but to try to shut down Crikey. Scandalous, really. Thanks as well, from me as well, Clive. Um, 
I guess my question follows on from that. Um, in, in your advocacy and, and the like, and I'm speaking as a fellow environmental advocate, which is more than climate change, um, but how um, I imagine, you know, you, you've come through the academic ranks and all that sort of thing. How, how do you manage um, at a personal level, how do you manage, like, any anxiety or fear issues that, that have come up yeah. uh, throughout your life? I mean, in a way, this is the... This is what we've got to, isn't it? I mean, like uh, quite a few of my friends, colleagues, uh, who have been engaged in the climate issues and environmental issues more broadly, particularly climate, um, you know, we know that uh, there's so much uh, uh, warming locked into the system now that it kind of doesn't matter what happens, it's going to be bad. You know, there's just... We can't stop it now. Uh, 10 years ago, maybe, 15 years ago, yeah, we could have limited it sharply, but not now. Too much CO2 in the atmosphere. And so when you get that, it's human to despair. I mean, at a very kind of deep level. I was having a conversation with one of my old uh, friends and colleagues about exactly this, and uh, basically you have to have coping strategies. You need to have means by which you cope with the anxiety, the despair, the despondency. And, you know, that, as that extract I read demonstrated, mine was to say, I just can't write. I can't, I'm, not, I, I'm going away from this. I can't deal with it anymore. And I thought, oh, I'll just write a book about China. Um, and so, uh, you know, which was a whole other thing. Um, but, yeah, that was mine and my friend um, who's been campaigning and writing. He's an academic and uh, done all kinds of things. He is now deeply into a very obscure Australian artist. <laughs> and so he's becoming the world expert in this uh, person. And that's his way of coping. And, and those of us with kids, of course, uh, or grandkids as, as I have, it's a very, very difficult thing. And so I think uh, I, did a, I did a bunch of interviews with about 22 young climate activists in Australia and end in Europe and a couple in the United States. And this is one of the things I was asking them, you know, how they, how they cope, actually. And it's, it's, a very, it's a very tragic thing to talk to these young activists about their lives and their fears and their hopelessness at times. And they, they have, um, they have uh, coping strategies which are, you know, it might be doing pottery or you know, uh, all kinds of things that just take them completely out of it. Uh, and, of course, sharing your anxieties with others is, is the first recourse, isn't it? Um, because, you know, when you do, there's nothing worse, which was the case for people who got it ten years ago, feeling as though you're alone. Because I, I do have known a couple of people who haven't had coping strategies and they've just been sucked into this void of despair and they kind of go mad. Thanks for that. Um, two questions. One's a quickie. Um, your first reading, um, no, the second reading, sorry, about the creepy feeling in the line of offices. Did yeah. you ever find out what it was? <laughs> no, although, uh, can I say this? You know, this is my defamation trigger going off. <laughs> the 
landlord was pretty creepy. <laughs> oh, really? I'm just an ex-camera person. I'm just interested. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I don't know. No, I don't know what it was. I'm yeah. sure you've all been in a place like that. You know, that's, yeah. what's wrong with this place? There's something, something horrible happened here. It's why houses where murders happen are very hard to sell. Uh, you know, they... they it, yeah, yeah. And second okay, question. More substantial. You called the book provocateur. Yeah. Um, and you didn't address that directly in your talk. But um, in what way did you establish yourself as a provocateur? Can you tell us a bit more about that mm. and how you saw yourself? Book titles are really hard, I tell you. Uh, we took a long, long time to settle on a title and subtitle um, and the cover, uh, which is brilliant in the end, but, man, there's a lot of work uh, for the publisher. Um, oh, look, I don't know. Well, I'm just basically a shit-stirrer. That's my... <laughs> my mother told me once, um, you know, Clive, you were such a placid boy when you were little. <laughs> And then something happened when I got into my teen years and I became a pain in the ass. And, 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 but a, politic, a political pain in the ass, if you know what I mean. And things just give me the shits, you know. This is wrong. And, and I'm blessed, privileged, I suppose, that I can write about it, some of the things. You know, I'm going to write an article about that. And that's a coping strategy, you know. I'm very lucky to have that capacity to have an outlet. And actually writing your anxieties, even if they're not published, as you know, is a very good way of getting them out. Um, I, I've done that too, not with a view to, you know, publishing anything, but just with getting it down on paper, articulating it. So yeah, it was, um, and that, and you know, I don't want to name drop; it's inevitable in this context, I suppose. But I got to know Michael Kirby quite well. He was a strong supporter of the Australia Institute, which surprised me. He, you know, and when he was uh, put on the High Court, always a strong supporter. And I went to meet him. He invited me for lunch at the High Court, which was fantastic. And uh, I met him in the uh, grand foyer and we were walking up uh, to the stairs or something and another High Court judge came down. He said, oh, this is Clive Hamilton, a fellow stirrer. <laughs> and so Kirby had that exact that same kind of impulse. You know, he was a stirrer. And, you know, some of us just have it. And, and you know, it's... <sighs> yeah. It comes with problems, you know. It's not, you know, it, it, cr it creates a, a lot of difficulties. Uh, but, you know, some people just can't help themselves, you know. I guess that's me, yeah. Okay. I've got a question for you, Clive. Yeah. Seeing that the Australia Institute started with this idea of ethics, and I've been one who's been very confused by the whole global warming argument... Uh, having followed it really from the early 1990s when it was all about clean technologies mm. and it transitioned into global warming and I actually knew quite a few of the people. So do you see today that the issue is an ethical issue or do you see it as a scientific issue? Because this is going to become like standard arguments for everything, COVID being one of them. Yes, yes. Are we dealing with ethics? Or are we dealing with the science? Or is it just bad economics? Yeah. Uh, good. Uh, well, I mean, always at its core, it's a scientific issue. If there weren't the solid science, which is now a mountain of evidence, there wouldn't be an issue. But, of course, when you're talking about something that's causing harm to people, particularly when uh, some wealthy, uh, powerful people are causing harm uh, to poor, um, uh, um, uh, impoverished uh, people, um, that's a profoundly moral issue. And so that's right from the start. 
and that's uh, and that's only sticking within the human dimension. Of course, the impact of human activities on on uh, ecosystems and and other forms of life is also at a different kind of argument, uh, uh, an ethical issue as well. But of course, uh, it's not all one way. I mean, if you're going to, sh you know, if we had um, sharply reduced our emissions in the 90s, early 2000s, you know, really took the warning seriously and introduced the policies. Of course, there are ethical in issues involved in how you go about it and who's going to be effect most affected by those policies. Um, uh, yeah, particularly those who have their li lives and livelihoods in the traditional industries. And, um, the, but um, some of us, um, way back from the late 1990s, were saying, you know, we, people of a green hue, um, were saying, look, this is going to be a huge transition. We're going to change the economy if we take this seriously in, in massive ways. We must do it in a way that's just that looks after the people who are displaced. I mean, Australia had done that before. If you think back to the Hawke-Keating years and um, yeah, competition policy, um, caused massive change in, uh, in the Australian economy uh, and therefore in the structure of jobs. And there were a whole bunch of programs introduced, uh, perhaps not enough, uh, to try to uh, facilitate the transition. So, yeah, it's all three, yeah. Uh, we've got time for one more question. Anyone have one? Otherwise, everyone's intimidated. Um, okay, Clive, thank you so much for coming. That's been a really inspiring speak. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.